You're listening to the Northfield Radio Program, where faith, family, and culture all collide with the biblical worldview. There is a war that's raging for the hearts and the minds and the spirits of men and women. And you and I, as Christians, are on the forefront of that battle. The question is, what will you do? To find out more about the Northfield Radio Program and Caleb Gordon, go to www.calebgordon.com. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Northfield Radio Program. So excited that you're here with me today. As always, I want to say thank you to our friends at Outpost Coffee. Um, seriously, they have the most amazing caffeinated beverages. Check these guys out at outpostcoffeeco.com. So, um, on today's program, I just want to talk about the idea of suffering and the world in which we live. Um, it's not shocking to say that the world's broken. Like, none of you, as you listen to the show, are going, oh my gosh, like, that's so profound. It's obvious that the world's broken. Um, we see it every day. Um, the world is messed up. The news shows us probably the, some of the most gritty, nasty stuff. Now, in saying that, when God created the world right around, right around 6,000 years ago, Everything was perfect. Everything was as it should be. There was no blemishes. There was no death. There was no hurting. There was no hate. All of it was perfect. Um, that was Genesis 1 and 2. And then enters sin and Satan in Genesis chapter 3. And from that moment, everything was just sort of kind of broken and fractured and messed up. Uh, creation was broken. Animals moved from eating plants and, and, and vegetation to to devouring one another, killing one another. Relationships were broken. Marriage went from really easy to incredibly difficult. Um, brothers and sisters now fight with one another over silly and trivial things. Friendships can quickly be torn apart over things that are perceived as horrific and just. I mean, we've got all kinds of problems. Um, <laughs> this is the sinister nature of sin in the fall. Uh, all of us that are that are listening to this, that are a part of this uh, broadcast right now, have experienced suffering on some level or another. We just, we just all have. We've all experienced it. But even in knowing all of this, even knowing that yes, the world is broken right now, we also are very, very as Christians confident in the fact that we serve a risen and sovereign King, a risen and sovereign Savior who is in control over all things. He knows all things. He is in the midst of all things. Yet God juggles planets, but yet he is powerful enough to walk into your life and to know exactly what's happening in your world. Uh, in fact, Psalms 29 tells us that God is enthroned over the floods of our lives. So, sort of, kind of what I want to talk about just today is just this idea of, of suffering. And the main part of the Bible that I want to run to and talk to about this is in James chapter 1. <clears throat> and James sort of kind of unpacks for us how we as Christians should handle or walk through suffering. Um, James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials and kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full and perfect effect, that you may be perfect and lack nothing. So, I want us just to just start there. 
Like James tells us something that's really countercultural to our, to our, especially in the evangelical American Christianity. Count it pure joy. Count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Now, <clears throat> you and I live in what I like to call as the American theological system. And we have sometimes, we are sometimes by default caught off guard when bad stuff happens to us. When bad stuff walks into our house and raises its ugly head, we tend to get upset because man, we're Americans. We live in America, the land of plenty, the land of comfort, the land of you know excess. We've got all this stuff and we can sometimes ask the question, well, why me? I go to church. My kids aren't horrible. I, I pay my taxes. I do what's right. And a majority of Americans, we, as Americans, we live, most of us, in comfort. I mean, even some of the poorest of us are better off than people that are in Venezuela or any you know third world countries. We're just, Americans live in comfort. And when comfort is disrupted, we really get perplexed. We tend to get really snappy and I mean sometimes we just get really angry at God and we we start to think that we're owed something that the Bible never promises us that we're owed. Um, in fact, we've got men and women who stand in pulpits and they spew this from the pulpits that God's here to give you what you want. <clears throat> in fact, I've got a quote right here in front of me by Joel Olstein. He said, now listen, because it sounds really this sounds really good, right? It's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. Like now, this is from Joel Osteen. This sounds really. Doesn't that sound? Yeah, yeah. It's God's will for me. Well, and then he continues. Says, it's God's will for you to pay your bills and not live in debt. So that sounds really great and wonderful and beautiful. But then you start to, if you really study the Bible, the Bible never says. That it's God's will for you to live in prosperity. Not from, the, not from the standpoint of prosperity that Joel is talking about. Joel is strictly speaking from a physical, financial well-being. That's what, that's what he's talking about. If you serve God, if you serve God, this is what the prosperity gospel is. That if you serve God, your bank account's going to be full. Your life is going to be filled with excess. You're not going to have to ever worry about health, sickness. You're always going to be healthy. You're never going to have any problems. Um, and the problem with that is that's not the real gospel. You don't come to Christ in this in the prosperity gospel. The only reason people come to Christ is because they can get something out of God. The prosperity gospel is no longer the gospel. It is it, what this pretty much is turned into is that God is my personal genie. That's what Jesus is in the prosperity gospel. He gives me what I want, whether it's a nice house, a private plane, health, prosperity, influence, all these different things. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It is a narcissistic gospel. Um, <laughs> and what happens is that gospel no longer becomes good news that you are a sinful wretch in, deserve, in, in, in need of a Savior. Rather, it is that G Jesus becomes your personal cosmic bellhop. He becomes this, bing, 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 Lord, I need you. Here's what I need. I need, a, I, need some, I need a raise. I need this. And here's the thing. I know that God answers prayers and God blesses his people. Like, 
Psalms 29 tells us that, that God blesses his people. And he watches, how do I know, maybe the text tells us, and I'm going to just read it just so you guys know that I'm not making something up. Because I do believe that God blesses his people, but this is the difference. It says at the end of Psalms 29, the Lord is enthroned over the floods. The Lord is enthroned forever. And may, he, may the Lord give strength to his people and may the Lord bless his people with peace. Now, <clears throat> that's God does an amazing thing in the midst of suffering and in the midst of trials, he blesses his people. But what happens with the prosperity gospel is that it pushes out another narrative. It, it's, a, it's a false and dangerous narrative um, and has no ability. The prosperity gospel has no ability to bring everlasting life. Um, it just doesn't. In John chapter 16, verse 33, it says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. Now, I want you to notice something that God over and over and over again constantly talks about having peace. And if you read John chapter 16, it talks about some of the, in context, all, there's, there's a lot of crazy things that are happening in John chapter 16. And so at the end of this text, John, uh, um, Jesus tells us in John, <clears throat> I've told you this, that you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Now, he's overcome the world of sin, death, and hell. He's overcome these things. The whole point of the text is to tell people to stop trying to find peace and comfort in this world, in this present place, because it's never going to happen, but rather find peace in Jesus. That, that's where you're going to find everlasting peace and everlasting joy. So we, we've been promised tribulation in the text. <clears throat> the, the word tells us that we're going to have tribulations and we're going to have trials in this life. And you say, well, Caleb, I'm I'm not really experiencing anything like that right now. Well, thank God for that. That's a, that is a blessing that you're not experiencing that because the text tells us in this world you're going to have trials, you're going to have troubles. You, you just are. <clears throat> so, why James is telling us this, is telling us this um, he says if you're walking in trials, this is what James gives us sort of kind of a, an instruction here. He says if you're, if you're walking through trials, consider it joy. And I know that that's not our first go-to to, oh yeah, of course. That's not, the, the, the human knee-jerk reaction is not to consider suffering a, a joyful thing. But the text tells us this is what we're to do. Why? Because suffering produces in us something. Uh, what does the text say? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I just, let's just pick up our word, steadfastness. Let's look at the definition. Firm in purpose, resolute in faith, unwavering in commitment, firmly established. So when trials come, they walk into our lives for a reason. God uses trials for a purpose, like he just he just does. Now later in the text, in James, it tells us that God tempts no one with sin or evil. So we can't say, "Oh, God's God's fault that I sin," because that's not the truth at all. Um, <clears throat> but He allows trials to come into our lives in order to mold us and shape us. I think of Job. Um, Job was living that best life. Now he was prosperous. He was living that you know what what Joel Osteen would consider. Uh, fancy, what Benny Hinn would consider just an amazing, immaculate, amazing life. He had it all. Um, and Satan entered 
and had a conversation with Jesus. and said, hey, consider your, your servant Job. There's a reason Job's having, you know, there is a reason Job's serving you. Because he's got everything. You've given him all kinds of stuff. He has no trials, no problems, nothing. There's a reason he's serving you. Because he has it all. God says, okay, this is the power of God's sovereignty. God knows all things. This is how deceived the enemy is. He doesn't understand that the enemy know that, that God knows all things. And so, God says, okay, take it all from him. Just don't kill him. And Satan does. Satan swoops in. He loses everything. Houses, kids, livestock, employees, businesses. He, he, it all crumbles. And Job stays true. Now, Job does ask questions. Sure, we can ask. And, and here's the thing. The scripture never says you can't ask questions in the midst of trials. We sure can. We can honestly ask questions. And so Job asks questions. And then it's funny because God shows up to answer Job. And Job had all these, you know, preconceived ideas of what he's going to say to God. And God shows up and goes, who are you, man? Where were you when I formed the heavens? Where were you? Who are you? And Job literally was like, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm just going to stop talking. I'm not going to say anything. And as a result of him living through that trial, steadfast, committed to Christ, there was a steadfastness that came out, and he was, when he came on the other side, it was better. God reestablished all kinds of stuff in his life and, and, and changed his life. <clears throat> and now, I think there's something incredible that happens when we as believers start to look at our lives through these lenses, that through this through this particular text when we start to look at trials and troubles and and temptations in this life as blessings rather than a curse and i've said this before you guys this isn't anything new but i believe strongly that it shifts everything in terms of how we react to situations in our life romans chapter 5 verses 3 through 5 sort of kind of gives us another uh, another view of this same idea it says not only that but we rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope, it, it, it does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So, this is what's amazing about the Christian faith. We, we live in a fallen world. So here's the thing, everyone is going to walk through suffering on some level. I mean, it's just going to happen. But what we walk through produces something in us. When we lean into who Jesus is in the midst of the suffering, it's doing something in us. It's not what happens to you, it's what happens in you to make the difference in your life. So... Your, let's just your life falls apart. You get a phone call that's the doctor says it's you got ten months to live. Um, you're gonna you know something's gonna happen in your life, or, or you get a bad report, a relationship shatters. Um, we, then here's the thing: we we press into who Jesus is, and know that God is going to insert hope into this equation because this is not the end. This life right now, the the air that we breathe, the skin that you're in, is not the end. This is not the end of the game for believers. The hope that we have is eternal. 
And that's the reason the text says, hope, this hope does not disappoint. Rather, it builds us up. So, it starts, it's starting to look like there's a sort of a theme in the text. We've got all these different texts that tell us, hey, listen, you're going to walk through suffering. You're going to walk through trials. You're going to walk through some big struggles. But here's the thing. I'm going to step in in the midst of this, and you're going to experience joy. You're going to have hope. You're going to build, your character is going to be built up in this. Um, there's amazing things that you can be taught and that you can learn through walking in suffering. And, and I know people personally who've walked through some deep waters. And in the midst of those trials, sure, they have questions, but on the, on the other end of it, they come out and they're just like, man, God's so faithful and God's been so good to us. It's been so good to me. And I, I understand that personally on a personal level, just in my own life. I've seen where God's shifted and transformed things in my own heart, my own life. And so this just, it's just huge to, to understand that because um, Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself, now listen to this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. And then Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, like, I want us to see this, like, even in Romans, it tells us that, listen, if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be an heir with him, you're going to suffer with him. But here's the end result. You will also be glorified with him in the end. If you, you suffer now, <clears throat> you walk through a momentary moment of suffering, you will be eternally glorified with Jesus. How do I know? Because the text tells us that, and that's, I believe, God's word. So, here's the thing. We shouldn't be shocked when suffering enters the door of our house. We shouldn't, because, number one, we live in a fallen and broken and sinful world. But also, because Jesus said, listen, it's coming for you. <laughs> suffering is coming for you. And Jesus has made it quite clear that if we belong to him, suffering would be sort of a normal thing. So, um that we only go through the amount of pain and suffering that we do is really a blessing. Like It, it really is, because we're owed. Like I, I want you to think about some brothers and sisters in China. I mean, there was just a couple months ago, I learned about this in December, a pastor in China was preaching in his, in his service. They came in and drug him out, put him in prison, <clears throat> held him in this prison, a Chinese prison, not an American prison, held him in a Chinese prison, and really with no, no reason, they held him in there, and then they had a trial, and now he's been convicted. He's going to live in a prison for the next ten years of his, nine or ten years of his life. Why? Because he simply stood in the pulpit and said, Thus saith the Lord. This is the gospel. He preached the gospel. And it, it's just one of those things that, yes, I see it, and I'm like, man, that, I hate that. But the word promises us the world will hate us, and they will try to take us out. Satan has a, there is a war that's raging in the world right now for our hearts and our minds and our souls. It's it's here, and, and it's evil versus good, Jesus versus Satan, and we're in the midst of this thing. And 
you're going to walk through suffering. I'm going to walk through suffering. Um, Tim Keller says this, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys for seeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Now, who's our coming joy? Jesus. Jesus is coming. The coming joy is Christ. You see, the issue I have with so much of the American Christianity and the American gospel is that we are not truly longing for Jesus. We are momentarily content with Him as a cosmic bellhop. But, but I think, as a whole, most people that are sitting in pews, um, they don't want a lasting satisfaction with just Jesus. They want Jesus' stuff. They don't want they don't want God himself. They want God's blessing. And <clears throat> I don't know. Um, the enemy uses this present world to get us to shift our affections to anything and everything other than Jesus. But like I said, you talk to men and women who are walking in suffering and see their response and they know Jesus. Uh, I, I think about my mom. My mom passed this last year and even in the midst of her laying in a bed riddled with cancer, her, her anthem was, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I can't wait to see you. Jesus, you're mine. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And even in the darkness of the hospital, I saw her hold fast to her faith in Christ. And this is the hope of James, that James lays out. Those trials that you're walking through are refining your faith. They're shifting your faith from one degree of glory to another. And, and the gaze that you have, the, the, the view that you have of this world, it just, it's shifting that. When you walk through suffering, the shift is off of this world and onto Jesus. This is why the prosperity gospel is so incredibly wicked. This is why all the, the word of faith, charismatic stuff from Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, uh, Joel Osteen, Todd White, all of those guys. It is just, it is a counterfeit gospel that is not, it doesn't have a lasting salvation. And I, I fear for these men because they, they preach a gospel that is not Christ-centered. Oh, they use the word Jesus and they'll throw in religious uh, terminology. But the focus is the world. Getting everything you can get out of the world. Um, like I said, and God becomes a cosmic bellhop to get us what we want. And that is a horrible and dangerous message. Um, churches need to be aware um, of who they allow to to influence their, their spirituality. They need to guard their pulpits. And, and these, these celebrity pastors <clears throat> who stand in pulpits and propagate and push out a gospel that is narcissistic, <laughs> um, they're, these guys aren't going to be held guiltless because they're fleecing the bride of Christ. And I, that is dangerous, dangerous territory to fleece the bride of Christ. So... Suffering is what we're going to walk through to make us look more like Jesus. Um, Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to compare with the glory that is going to be, re going to be revealed to us. 
And man, think about what kind of, what you say, what kind of suffering did uh, Paul go through? Well, Paul had a pretty good, Paul was living his best life too. And Jesus um, showed up on the Damascus road and said, you're mine now. You're going you're gonna to suffer for my sake. Um, 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 11 says this, five times, starting in verse 24, five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes, last one, three times I was beaten with a rod, once I was stoned, like with rocks, uh, three times I was shipwrecked, uh, a night and a day, I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger uh, from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, uh, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, without food, in cold and exposure, and it Part, and apart from all of these things, there's a daily pressure on me for the anxiety for all the churches. So to cap that off, he's had all these things, and at the end of it, he's like, I'm worried about the church. I'm worried about the, the state of the church. Guys, this is this is what we're called to, this is, like, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. But Paul, at the end of this thing, he said, Philippians 1, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I if I win... Or if, if I live, I win. If I die, I win. So we win regardless. Like, it doesn't matter. We win in the midst of all of this. Jesus is the everlasting God. And he's the one who makes all things new and mends all things that are broken. I, I think of Isaiah chapter 40, <clears throat> verses 28 through 31. It says, Have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall have their strength renewed, and they shall mount up on wings like eagles, and they shall run and not uh, be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. The question I have for us today is, is your hope in Christ? Is your hope in Jesus alone? Because he's the one. The text today says, but they who wait on the Lord shall have their strength renewed. So that's my challenge for us today is, is your strength, is your hope, is your gaze, is your foundation Christ? Because if that's it, you're going to be all right. Even in the midst of suffering, you're going to be okay. And if I would challenge you, if, if you're chasing after anything else, if you view God as that cosmic bellhop, like I said, I'd challenge you to repent and find Christ to be the sovereign king who loves you. He does. He loves you. And, and we, we want Jesus, not his stuff. Like, I want Jesus, not his stuff. So that's my challenge for us today. Love you all. Have a, have a great week. This program has been brought to you by DSR, a technology company that has been investing in Bartles of a Families for over 35 years. DSR, we deliver technology.